This podcast is recorded on the lands of the Wurundjeri people and the Aranda people. We pay our deepest respects to their elders past, present and emerging. Always was, always will be Aboriginal land. We all misbehave sometimes. Want to change the world, indulge in some bad And welcome to Bad Behaviour. I'm Rosalind. And I'm Nicola. We're back. We are. We had a mid-season break, but we're back better than ever and older than we ever were before. Yes. Rosalind has aged since you heard her last. She has had a birthday. So happy birthday to Rosalind. (laughs) (laughs) I hate surprises for context. Like they give me such anxiety. And my sister was taunting me by saying she had created this beautiful surprise. And everyone said I would love it, but I was not convinced. And then the surprise was that Nicola Granage came to see me for my birthday, flew all the way from Alice Springs to surprise me on the evening of my birthday. It was the best surprise I've ever had. I cried. It was great. It was very, very cute. Honestly, feels like lifetimes ago. The whole time that I was trying to like plan it and hide it from you, I kept thinking like in the 11 or so years that I've known you, there's been no element of surprise whatsoever, you know, (laughs) like maybe it's maybe the surprise is that with each year that passes, we become more obsessed with each other. But like apart from that. But Rosalind guessed it, like, on the day. I had a dream that Nicola came, and I woke up certain she was coming, and then thought, that's crazy. (laughs) You're not psychic. I really enjoy a surprise where I have an inkling about the surprise. (laughs) It, It really... It got me, I don't know, there's sort of a feeling of like triumph and joy when you're like, oh my gosh, I almost could have guessed. I didn't guess, not completely. Anyway, thank you to everyone who was involved in that, including my friends who surprised me afterwards at the restaurant that I didn't know were coming. (laughs) That was great too. And then there was another surprise that they booked a weekend away. (laughs) It was surprise after surprise after surprise. It was great. And then everything steadily went downhill after that, didn't it? It did go downhill because we're now in lockdown again. Well, thank you to everyone at Bad Behaviour who wished me a happy birthday. (laughs) (laughs) On behalf of Nam Chedra and I, we wish you a very happy birthday and a great (laughs) 27th year of life. May you thrive, may you survive and may you become the person that we all dreamed you would be. You're so close. (laughs) If you just change a little. If you just change some tiny, really irritating things about you, you would literally be the woman of our dreams. So please check your inbox for the list that Chedji and I have sent you and get back to us. It's five pages long. I don't know how to do this. It's called constructive feedback, babe. Look it up. It's just called constructive criticism. (laughs) And then it's like... 0.1 Point one to 101 of your issues. <laughs> that would be awful. I would never do that. Don't worry. Speaking of uh, lists, <laughs> we have an amazing guest today, Judy Grizel, who is a neuroscientist and studies addiction. And so we're going to be diving into addiction. We're going to be diving into talking about <laughs> addiction. <laughs> That's a good distinction. Judy Grizel is a behavioural neuroscientist with expertise in pharmacology and genetics, whose research focuses on determining root causes of drug addiction. Judy is also the best-selling author of Never Enough, The Neuroscience and Experience of Addiction, which not only dives into her research, but chronicles her own journey of addiction and recovery. My name is Judy Grisell, and I'm a professor of psychology and neuroscience at Bucknell University in central Pennsylvania in the U.S. Could we start with a probably an easier question, but one that I think some people might need a little clarity on, which is just what is addiction? 
<laughs> that's so funny that you say that's an easy question uh, because I think we all need, well, we all need clarity on it and it's a great place to start, but it is not very clear, unfortunately. Behavioral disorders like addiction are really impossible to clearly delineate. I would say that addiction itself is characterized by having powerful cravings that kind of consume your mind and your time and uh, tolerance, especially to the pleasurable effects of the drug, which leads to cravings because you keep thinking, well, maybe if I have more, it'll work better this time and dependence, which is characterized by withdrawal when you take it away. And sometimes the dependence is really obvious, like with alcohol or opiates, so that it's a physical kind of dependence, but you can also have a psychological dependence, like with cocaine or THC, in which you just feel not quite yourself or not quite right without the drug. So craving, tolerance, dependence, and then also, because I have all those for caffeine, for instance, but uh, you also need to, for addiction to be happening, it has to be hurting you and other people. So it can't be beneficial, like my caffeine habit is beneficial. Instead, it has to really, you know, hurt your relationships, usually hurt your job, hurt your um, sleep or your health or, you know, you have, you can count them up, but there's a whole, you know, broad domain of things that might be compromised by your craving, tolerance, independence. And in that case, we would say you have an addiction. There's one other common attribute, which is denial. So this is a, an odd thing because if I for instance, had a lump somewhere and someone told me it was cancer, I'd probably say, oh my gosh, I have cancer. But with addiction, if someone says, you know, you might have a problem, the user is often the last person to see it. And there's a really powerful resistance to seeing the problem. And this, you know, obviously this whole constellation of things makes it very hard to treat. In the simplest forms, Rosalind, I would say that you have a substance use disorder if the costs of your using the substance outweigh the benefits. And that's sometimes hard to see. I'd love to speak a bit about your journey with addiction, which you write about in your book, Never Enough, The Neuroscience and Experience of Addiction. And you mention in some of your talks, which I've seen as well. So you were an addict yourself when you were younger. Yes, I was. I, I started young, and so I had that in my favor or disfavor, I guess you would say, um, by drinking first. And I was just about 13. I think I was probably 12, but close to 13. And kind of on a whim, this is really common. People that age want to experiment, and some are more experimental than others. I was easily bored. My parents were pretty strict. And so I don't know why, but it just seemed like a great idea at the time. I drank quite a lot of alcohol, and I really was kind of launched very quickly. It was incredibly freeing and pleasurable and um, exciting and soothing at the same time. It was really a, a transcendent experience. I, I say that not... Uh, exaggerating at all, but it was just a really profound thing for me. In fact, one of my areas of research now, which maybe we'll talk about later, is is trying to understand what causes differences in people when they first try the drug. Because for me and for many other people like me who develop problems, it was so powerful. I drank this half gallon of wine in a while well, I was sleeping over at a friend's house. It was in her parents' basement and they weren't too strict like my parents, so they weren't watching everything we did. I loved it, and I could not kind of get enough after that. In fact, I don't think, and this is also not exaggerating, that I ever said no to another drink or other kind of drug until I ended up in treatment about 10 years later. So I just, you know, just put it in front of me and I took it. And as a result, oh my gosh, I got a lot of trouble. 
I got kicked out of three schools, the first one in high school, and I was eventually homeless. I hated myself. I was lonely and ashamed, and I contracted hepatitis C from sharing dirty needles. I was kind of, you know, by the time I hit 23, I felt like I was 103, and there was nothing worth living for except for maybe more drugs. So I was really in this stuck place and um, I think it was cocaine, you know, alcohol, you can go for a while, even though it's so toxic, it's sort of not that potent. So it, it takes a while to die of alcohol use disorder. But um, for me, in the 1980s in South Florida in the US, I was a big stimulant user and it was really cocaine that I think drove me into the ground so fast. What uh, led you to getting treatment? Was it you decided that you wanted to change or was there someone external who, who asked you to go? Yeah, you know, they always say that you have to make up your mind to change. Absolutely not me. For for one thing, I I didn't, this sounds uh, kind of judgmental about my young little self, but I, I didn't have much of a mind at the time. And I certainly wasn't, I don't think, capable of using it to say, you know, enough is enough. Um, unfortunately, most people do have to get to that place. I was sort of so confused that I was a little bit tricked into it. I don't think it was an intentional trick, but my father, who has a unique way of dealing with things he doesn't like, which is to kind of completely block them out of his mind. So he, his reality is the reality. This is true for everybody, I guess, but he's like a master at this. If he doesn't want to see it, it's not there. And so he kind of had done that with me. He would tell people, you know, I have two sons my brothers, but he wouldn't even acknowledge that he had a daughter. I think I was, it was so painful, I guess. And um, it, for some reason that we still sometimes try to piece together in family uh, fun nights, um, he decided to take me out for dinner for my 23rd birthday. And I, even though I was hard as nails and belligerent and you know, quite a mess. I, I somehow thought I deserved, you know, a nice dinner from my father. So I decided to go and then I was immediately worried about, you know, well, how was I going to stay sober until dinner time? We went out to dinner and I was a little wasted, but I thought not so bad. And he kind of broke th through somehow and it's, it's surprising because it's not really him and it's not really me, but at that particular night, he said, I just want you to be happy. And I had an answer for absolutely everything, Rosalind. I was full of answers and I didn't have an answer for that except to burst into tears. And then he said, and he knew nothing about this, but my poor mother had been researching treatment centers for many years by this time. He said, um, well, would you be willing to go to treatment? And I was so confused. And this was a long time ago. So I had no idea what treatment was. I thought it was going to be like a spa where I learned how to drink, you know, or I got some tips on being healthier with my, I just, I, again, I had the denial. So I didn't think drug use was a problem. I thought it was a solution. But when he said treatment, I thought, well, yeah, I deserve that. I should get away. And so I agreed to it, and which is still amazing to me. But anyway, I did. I have, I have an open mind, I guess. <laughs> and I suppose I was open enough to try it. And then when I got there, which was like 2,000 miles away from my home, I, was, uh, I realized, wow, this isn't going to be quite what I thought. As I stayed and the drugs left my bloodstream and my brain, more importantly, I guess I got a little scared at the way my life was going, which I couldn't really see when I was, you know, out of it all the time. So I decided 
in my great wisdom that I was going to stay clean for seven years, solve or cure my problem, which they told me I had a disease. I figured diseases can be cured. I was going to take seven years, cure it, and then I was going to be able to use. <laughs> yeah, I'm glad you laughed because it's hilarious to me now. It's just unbelievable. But, you know, I was just fortunate that I was very persistent and arrogant, I guess, and confused. So that seemed like a reasonable plan. Because if you what they were saying was you if you want to live, you you have to be abstinent. And you know, this is somewhat of a debate. So I don't want to talk about it's not that I necessarily endorse that. But I do think, in my case, it probably was true. So I, um, but I didn't, I couldn't accept that then. But I could accept that okay, I just turned 23, I'll be almost 30 or just about 30. That's not so old, you know, to start your life. <laughs> and in the meantime, I'll fix this problem. So uh, I, I say this a lot, but it's funny to me that the characteristics that I have that made me such a terrible drug addict, like willingness to go to any length, and um, determination and uh, kind of like a single-minded focus that could block everything else out, including, you know, family funerals or final exams or anything else, um, was the same set of things that helped me persist to get finally my bachelor's degree, then my uh, master's and PhD in behavioral neuroscience and all this time I was, you know, reading and trying to learn about what was wrong with me uh, so that I could solve it. What an amazing way to get to neuroscience. <laughs> you know, what an ambitious young person you were. <laughs> well, selfish and ambitious. So I wasn't really altruistic or anything. A lot of people or most people in Australian society and I think also the US society, we agree that there's a lot of social pressure to drink and that when you're young, there's a lot of social pressure to try new things. Even now, I really struggle with, you know, if I'm at a large social event and other people are drinking, I don't say no and I don't think I could. I think I'd find that very uncomfortable. And the more I thought about it, the more I wanted to reflect on that because I started sort of playing around with drinking when I was, gosh, maybe 13, but it was very small It was, and it wasn't really with friends. It, it wasn't really part of my social interaction at that point. That happened much later. I was a bit of a goody two-shoes and didn't really start to drink on my own until I was maybe around 17. But back then I was trialing things and and sort of having sips of this and sips of that and I knew friends of mine who were drinking but at the same time my auntie who I didn't know well but had seen throughout my life she was an alcoholic and she actually passed away due to the effects of alcoholism and that was a huge moment in my life I was actually there when she died um and you know, the process of grieving her and her funeral and everything that was deeply impactful on my life at that point, because I, I think I was 12 or 13. I was quite young. And so this huge moment in my life came from alcoholism. There is alcoholism in my family. I have, you know, my siblings and I have talked about issues around alcohol that they've experienced and had to work through. And yet... I drink socially. I'm not, it's not a habit, but it's certainly not something I think I could give up. And, you know, when I go into a social situation, like I need the social lubrication, like I enjoy it. And if I think about hanging out with friends, there are very few activities that I wouldn't think were improved by alcohol. And yet I have a very 
full-on experience in my past that did impact me greatly and so I think that's kind of for me at least it shows the pressure that I got but also the insidious nature of substances like alcohol like it's it's so easy to fall into the trap of thinking but I would enjoy everything more with it and and so when Judy was talking about you know experiences outside of substances that can heighten experience of life and can give you all of this amazing you know joy in life sure I have a lot of internal goals and a lot of things that make me happy but true pure euphoric experiences have all come from alcohol use or drug use and that is not something I ever thought of I've definitely never thought of myself in any form an addict of anything I think because I do drink very rarely but it's still pretty interesting to take this idea and just look at your own habits And that kind of, yeah, it was, it kind of threw me a little. It's making me think about how there's a lot of gray area with addiction and it's not because I think I think of it in really black and white terms as you're either addicted or you're not addicted and there's no in-between stage. And I don't think that's true at all. Like I think you can have a difficult relationship with alcohol or a difficult relationship with marijuana and not be addicted to it but be reliant on it, it gets really confusing, doesn't it? Because you can't quite separate your feelings about it from the societal pressure, from your own family's experiences. Like it's all, it's just this big messy, you know, thing that exists that you have to to try your best to navigate. And honestly... You try your best to navigate it by doing what feels good. It's an instant gratification thing to be like, okay, I'm going out. I feel really shitty this evening. Let me drink a lot and I'll feel better. Yeah. And so when Judy was talking about addiction, one of the things that she said was, because I asked it thinking it would be a simple question. And she said, this is a really hard question. Um, and she did say it, ha- it impacts your life negatively is one thing that makes you an addict. And my instinct is immediately to say, but it doesn't impact my life negatively. But I don't know that that's a self-aware thing to say because, you know, Judy does mention that any amount of alcohol will impact your life expectancy. So in a way it is impacting me negatively. And the fact that I'm not confident in a social situation with many people without some form of, yeah, it is grey. It's grey, but you also you're doing your best amongst it like you can't I don't think there's any pressure for like being self-aware about something like this is talking about it is you know having that moment of intention before you drink and I think you know I think if you do that then you know that's okay for now and then if it I don't know this is such a hard subject because again my brain is so linear with it like and I've also grown up with the narrative that like one thing can tip you over the edge and you'll never come back from it as well so like you you know in my family there's this story that's told of like you know we have a history of mental illness that's triggered by drug use you know members of my family have developed schizophrenia bipolar from drug use I don't know how true that is that is a story that I grew up with about drugs so drugs were really villainized in my family like it was you do not smoke you do not you know experiment with any drugs drinking not so much because you know I grew up in an Australian family and drinking is part of like the way that Australians communicate with each other and that's you know a whole other conversation in itself but I remember at uni when I started smoking weed I would you know always hear in the back of my head my mum's kind of words about like how dangerous it was for me to do that and how it would like you know the behavior would escalate really quickly and I honestly didn't think much of it at the time like I just kept doing it (laughs) you know I was young and 
um, dismissive of everything my mother said. Um, and so, and you know, I became like, I would smoke every day. It was, it brought me a lot of joy. I loved being high. I loved smoking with friends. It made me feel connected to people. It made me feel creative. It, um, it became kind of like a ritual. Like you'd smoke before you went out, you'd smoke before you went to bed, you'd smoke on the weekend. Like it was this, um, it was this just ritual that we'd partake in. And I honestly had no problems with it. I was chilling. Me and weed were best buds. And then I had a really horrible traumatic incident with um, eating an edible and it like triggered panic attacks for me. So I had never had panic attacks before. And then I had this horrible experience where I don't know if it was laced with something or what it was, but it, um, yeah, I all of a sudden started getting panic attacks. Um, and that was so scary. And it was definitely like a cause and effect thing. Like I would smell weed and I would have a panic attack and I couldn't, you know, even though I hadn't smoked and had a bad experience, I couldn't have anything to do with weed at all for and I still haven't I haven't smoked since then because it was honestly it was a horrible um experience um and it yeah it's really confusing because even now when I look back on that I know it had bad impacts on my mental health but I don't I don't think it was just the drug that was doing like that was unlocking that, you know, like I still have that complicated relationship where I'm like, you know, but it's, it's weed. Like it's okay. People should be okay to smoke. Though I have alcoholism in my family, I don't, I don't really think I have an issue because I, I think, I mean, I drink like what, once every couple of months, (laughs) which is rather low for Australia. So maybe that's just me thinking relatively, but I get what you mean because it's kind of like you go, oh, but because it's so rare or because it's so acceptable you know everyone drinks so who cares (laughs) you know it's so normalized yeah normalized that's what I'm trying to say it's just normalized I think too there's a part of it that's um it's that classic thought pattern where you think oh but not me like that could never happen to me I could you know our families have both my um, grandfathers were alcoholics. My family has a, a history of alcoholism and addiction as well. And it, in my head, it's still, oh, but not me. Like, I don't have a problem with that. Even knowing what I know about drugs and alcohol, even having experienced the breakdown of my mental health as I did with weed, it's still, I still can't quite grapple with like being fully sober and also with with the harm that it causes as well you know at being being like a social user yeah and then watching people who you know friends of mine who have struggled with this and there are many um is kind of its own journey because you you're trying to empathize empathize with somebody who is struggling with taking substances because they feel like they need it or because it you know it just becomes this compulsion in their lives until suddenly they're always drinking and you never see them without it and it's it's just this constant thing and it's kind of like what do you say when the substance that they're taking is so acceptable and I mean, I didn't learn about addiction when I was young. I still don't know a lot about it um, in terms of, you know, when I was younger, there was no one saying, by the way, because you're young and your brain is malleable, you have a higher chance of developing an addiction. So (laughs) be aware. I was never told that when I was younger. And when you were talking about, you know, you in in, um, uni, we were very good friends despite being half a world away. And I talked to you a lot and I would say the majority of the time you would be high when I talked to you. <laughs> and that was fun. It was funny to me. It was never, I never thought about it as like, you know. Oh, she's got a problem. Like I should eat. Yeah. That's like most of the time when I talked to you. So maybe that was just because it was a social thing. But like, 
I, it never occurred to me to say, Nicola, by the way, you're high a lot. Is this a problem for you? And it's, so that's a sort of failing in my education because of that social pressure. For me, even now when I look back at it, I don't think of it as, and and maybe again, this is, <laughs> you know, my own mental health issues and like compartmentalizing and not dealing with my own history. But I don't think of it as, like, I think of that stage of my life as pretty joyful. Like I had a lot of fun, uh, you know, it made me a bit stupid at times, sure. Like I was, I did you know, I watched a copious amount of cartoons and like ate raw cookie dough, like at least once a week. But like, other than that, I was pretty, you know, I was having fun. And so like recoloring memories where like there could have been a substance abuse issue as like, like it's, it's difficult. And like, even now, you know, I have one friend who that, one of my best friends was alongside me throughout that journey of of like smoking every day and it was you know that's how we became friends and we're still such close friends and you know he does use drugs like he smokes regularly and I don't think of it as a problem with him at all yeah like it's just part of his life well he's not exhibiting those effects that we assume happen when you're uh, an addict like you think oh this person's sort of spiraling down into some kind of crisis and y- you would know you know you there's kind of this idea that you would know and I don't know that you necessarily would so the fact that I never asked you despite the fact that even if I had you would have said no it's not a problem but it didn't occur to either of us to question what was happening. I think the bar is so low for what we consider to be a problem. Like, or no, maybe it's not low, it's so high. Like, we have such intense standards of what addiction is. Like, we don't think of, I don't think of the fact that I need four cups of coffee a day to be like coherent as an addiction, but it absolutely is. I don't think about the fact that, like, you know, as soon as I feel sad, I spend like an hour and a half scrolling on TikTok. Like those things don't trigger in my head that word addiction. But I, I just I think the standards and the way that you're that we talk about it and the way that we question people and the way that we treat people who are addicts or who are sober, who choose to live sober. It's it's all so entwined. And it it's yeah, this conversation is it's difficult to have, isn't it? Yeah. And I think, I think that the, the ideas that Judy brought up were really important about finding ways to have excitement and joy in your life without this, because I think there is a lot of socially dictated, (laughs) uh, emphasis on it. Yeah, exactly. And um, I think I need to go away and, and have some ideas about things that, I mean, maybe playing music and singing and stuff like that. That's kind of a, in a way, that heightened experience for me. Performing is definitely something that brings me to that state of of pure excitement and joy. But um, yeah, maybe I need to do more of that. But it's locked down. <laughs> so you need a goddamn drink to do the thinking. <laughs> No, it's really hard. I'm so resistant to thinking about it as well. I am so resistant to having to actually deal with like the things that I am reliant on in my life that I don't have as much control over as I think, you know, that is so while you, you know, you're saying you're going to go away and think about it. I'm not going to go and think about it. I'm not, you know, I really don't want to delve into that stuff just yet. You're leading by example here. (laughs) (laughs) You know, but I think that's also, it's like a good, it's good to think, it's good, a good thing to say because it's super confronting this, I mean, literally everything we talk about on this podcast (laughs) is intense, but (laughs) to think about, you know, in theory, I'm like so moved by Judy's journey and her ideas. And it's so interesting to me to think about the brain and what's happening. But oof, 
goodness, God forbid it ever, <laughs> I ever, you know, reflect on how that has, mm. uh, you know, manifested in my life. Um, that's a thing for future Nicola. <laughs> well, speaking of that, let's jump back into Judy <laughs> and you can tell us more about the brain. <laughs> Help us, Judy. <laughs> Did you know that the average person uses over 11,000 menstrual disposable products in their lifetime? And it's estimated that over 100 billion menstrual disposables end up in landfill annually. That's why we are so excited to collaborate with Muddy Body, the new way to period. I personally love Muddy Body products and I'm so excited to work with them. Muddy Body products help me feel my best when I'm on my period and I highly recommend them to anyone looking to explore a more sustainable and comfortable way to have your period. They are also committed to creating a positive impact as a brand. This includes helping to end period poverty and supporting health education programs that normalize and open up conversations around our bodies, which is something we're also trying to do here on Bad Behaviour. Check out modibody.com for more details. Modibody is the new way to period. Why do some people become addicted and some people don't when they use certain drugs? That is another million dollar question. And I spend all of, or I shouldn't say all of my time, but I spend a darn lot of my time trying to answer that question. And it was, you know, interesting to me as a scientist, but also interesting to me as a former addict. I just, and many of us, I guess, would like to understand why do some people self-destruct with drugs and other people seem to just use them, you know, to enhance their lives? And I would say there are four big things. Genetics accounts for about half of it. So the risk for substance use disorders, the kind of things we were just talking about, is partly embedded in our biology. And so some people have naturally higher risk than others. If you have a lot of problem users in your family or people who are depressed or anxious in your family, then we know you're at higher risk. Also, if you start using early, and uh, so it turns out that you are very much more likely to develop addiction if you begin using before you're 18. If you do, you're probably got a, at least a one in four chance developing a problem. And for every year before 18, it goes up quite a lot. If you wait till you're 21 or when you're maybe even a little bit later, when your brain is more mature, it's pretty unlikely that you develop a disorder. Now you can always do it if you use enough, but just like kids are better able to learn anything, addiction is a form of learning or brain adaptation and it happens much more readily in young people than in older people. And then another big factor is adverse childhood experiences and stress in general, but um, especially when they're young. And these, these early experiences, which uh, can take quite a many forms, including, you know, your parents not getting along or fighting in the house or they or one of them has a substance use disorder or depression. So, um, you know, abuse, lots of neglect, those kinds of things. They really kind of light the fire, I guess, especially if you have those early stressors and then try drugs as an adolescent, which you're likely to do. You're really likely to realize quickly that they can help you cope or feel like you're coping with the sadness or the trauma that you've experienced. And so that can easily become a habit. And then also there's just a lot of social and cultural pressure. I, I guess pressure might be too strong of a word, but certainly it's the norm to use something to escape reality. And so I think for some of us, that's especially problematic. You mentioned earlier that there's a debate around whether abstinence is the best way to go about if people are predisposed to addiction. Are there other ways if you know that you might be, if it's sort of family history and, and stuff like that, other than just not taking drugs? Yeah, well, the data 
Unfortunately, I say this unfortunately because I would like nothing better than to occasionally use. The problem is I can recognize in myself, I've had so much practice trying to be honest with myself that I can see that, you know, what is occasionally? <laughs> and I know that, you know, there wouldn't be enough for me, but it's possible. So the first thing is we start usually to experiment. And we quickly learn that it produces fun, which is nice, and it helps us escape from boredom or other kinds of pain like trauma. The thing about the fun is it gets less and less fun over time. And any regular user of any substance will admit that. You have to increase the dose and it doesn't work as well because the brain adapts to make us normal. As far as the coping goes and helping us deal with uncomfortable feelings, um, those uncomfortable feelings, then we don't come up with other ways to do it. And so we have to use more and more. It doesn't solve the uncomfortable things or the misery that we're in. It just kind of glosses over it and, you know, it's still there. And so when the drug goes away, it's usually bigger because now there's been more consequences. And so that kind of snowballs too. But if you realize that you're, if you're using it to cope, don't make it a habit. And a habit is the sort of first big step toward addiction. So if your habit is, you know, every leap year day, so it's once every four years, that's no big deal. But if your habit is every Friday and Saturday, or then Thursday and Friday and Saturday, that is likely to turn into a compulsion. And what I mean by that is that Friday comes and if for some reason you can't or you shouldn't use, you're miserable. And all you can think about is the drug. Well, that's craving and compulsive use comes from that. And right after that, I guess, is um, the kind of despair associated with addiction because then I'm willing to give up lots of things so that I can keep my, my habit and my compulsion happy. And I think it's very insidious the way it develops. It's slow, but the, the easiest way to avoid it is don't use habitually. I mean, I've talked a lot to friends who have either high tolerance or low tolerance to various things. Is that is tolerance then sort of your brain has reacted to what you've already had? Is that what tolerance is? Um, well, so there's many ways to be tolerant. It's very cool. You could spend a whole course studying tolerance. It could be that your liver adapts. And so it chews it up quicker and metabolizes it more quickly. So now you don't even get it to your brain. That's uh, maybe less interesting than the neural tolerance, which is that the same amount of drug reaches your brain, but it produces less and less effect. And for most drugs, we have both, but we always, we always have the brain tolerance. Um, but part of that is genetic. So there's some people who are kind of born tolerant and some people who have a hard time becoming tolerant. And that sorts out according to your risk for addiction. So the people who are innately tolerant the drug, you know, they, like when I drank all that alcohol, I had about a half a gallon of wine my first time. And I was pretty good. I was talking to her parents. I don't think I was slurring my words. The bed didn't spin. I didn't throw up. I just felt great. That was uh, kind of a bad indication. If you, if you are not tolerant, then you're less likely to increase the dose and less likely to develop dependence. So um, part of that is what you inherit. And then part of it is just regular exposure. And probably virtually anyone could become addicted if they use frequently enough, you know, high doses regularly. Um, but some people are m much quicker at that. Um, I wanted to ask, I recently watched um, The Queen's Gambit on Netflix, which I'm sure a lot of people have. And it was interesting to me because it was someone who was struggling with substance abuse, but it was sort of centered around that person. It was very much, this person is amazing and, and you were really intrigued and excited to follow her journey. 
And after watching that, I thought about it a little because I, I think I watched it on Monday. So I was thinking about this interview coming up. And I realized that I haven't seen a lot of films and TV that kind of put addiction or addict in a light where they're not, you know, I don't know the right word, but probably, you know, uh, terrible (laughs) might be a word. Like there seems to be a lot of stigma around addicts and addiction, at least from my very sort of pop culture view. Do you agree? Do you think that there is a lot of stigma around around addiction? Yeah, I definitely do. And I think it's um, kind of astounding because it's so common. You know, it's not that you don't know anybody who has a problem and then when you see them, wow, isn't that weird and interesting? I think it's more that the stigma is a defense for the rest of us, especially those who might not be quite addicted, but might not want to look at their using. And, uh, you know, so it's easy to say, wow, those people are really terrible. You know, they're living under a bridge and I still have an apartment, so I'm okay. Um, But I, I do think there's this very bimodal response. Either you use in such a way that it's champagne and lip gloss and, you know, nothing but fun and beauty or you are you know this terrible person and I don't think that reflects reality at all I do think that it's much more in the middle and that especially after this year of COVID many people are using to cope So earlier we were talking about how it's so hard to know when a friend or family member or someone you're connected to has a problem with substances because, and I think this is largely in part of to something that Judy actually mentioned, which is this idea that addicts fall into two stereotypes. Um, and I thought that was very valid because I think it's true. But Nikki, when I say addict, what is the stereotype that comes to mind? Um, well, I definitely think of homelessness. That's one of the first things that pops into my head. Um, and it's honestly, after that, it's just like a blur of, of like portrayals that I've seen on film and television. So like the family member that's like stealing from the family and what Judy said about there being like the two, you know, either like this homeless addict on the street or this high-flying you know masculine embodied businessman that that completely encapsulates my version of addiction as well like I don't think of it in between and so I really um, think that that makes it difficult to have empathy because I've not had any close personal connections with addicts it's something that I need to learn about and I need to have more empathy for people who are struggling with addiction as well because of course it's a part of so many lives no I think you're right I think it's I think what you've kind of said is that like the human element of addiction is missing from the story because we've got the addict on the street who's taking their doll money to go buy drugs that's the the political version that has been used to kind of be anti-welfare in many ways. And then you've got the, the glamorized version where it's, it's sort of these rich people doing drugs and having issues. And we can't empathize with them either because they have, it's a first world problem. They have money and cars and everything that you could ever want because of the doors that are opened by their uh, social economics sort of status it's hard to empathize with someone who has everything material that you don't and so those two very vast discrepancies there you know like the the two sides of this coin are very hard to empathize with because of the narrative that's been built around them whereas when you actually look into 
homelessness and addiction in that it's a very sad and very human problem and when you look if you were to meet someone who was struggling with addiction and happened to have money you would probably empathize with them if they told you their story but then what we're missing is all of the the variations in between of people who are just you know your mom or your sister's friend it's sort of the same way we talk about mental illness where it's until you meet someone and talk to them about it it's very hard to imagine what life is like for that person when i was talking to judy i was talking about having watched the queen's gambit and how i didn't feel like i'd seen a lot of tv shows or movies where the focus was on the person and that it was, I mean, in many ways it was glamorized because she was a very glamorous character, but you kind of wanted her to succeed and to get clean and, and her character was fascinating and she was a human being and well-formed and her character arc was all internal. It wasn't about her finding love with some boy. It was, it, so that was interesting, but again, it's, yeah. I agree. Basically, I'm rambling to say I agree with you and that the human element has gone missing from this narrative and that it's hard to empathize. I just had a really interesting brainwave where I'm thinking about how I don't think that you can talk about addiction without talking about race. That's a really important thing that colors the conversation as well, because in terms of stigma and stereotypes entire races have been defined by this definition of of addict you know like when you when you look at indigenous australians and how there's so many stereotypes about alcoholism and um you know all this and and even even when you look into the you know the criminalization of like the difference between crack and cocaine and like the over incarceration of black men in america that's a really important piece of the puzzle that i haven't been able to that i've just realized right now i think we you really do need to consider the implications of addiction in light of systemic oppression because it's um this is your coming along with me on this journey of this idea that I'm just forming but like addiction in a way has been a tool used by colonizers hasn't it oh definitely there are so many stories about various I mean many many different colonizing I was about to say organizations countries turning up places and deciding to get the local population to become addicted to various substances including opium and things like that that's a whole other story that we should definitely dive into though because you're right as soon as you brought it up I was thinking about before I had looked into and learnt more about Indigenous Australian history and culture one of the biggest things that I had heard was that they were alcoholics they as in an entire group of people which is very sad and it's true I do think it's been used in a political way for a really long time the stigma about addiction is a very useful tool yeah well it comes back I think it does come back to the empathy thing as well like when you think about addiction and you think about the history and the trauma that it holds for marginalized groups in society it is required learning to understand that as well when you're trying to help friends or family who may have struggles with addiction or if you're even just trying to broaden your worldview to be a more inclusive um, and safer space for addicts as well I think that it's um yeah it's that's a really important area to be uh, aware of is the you know the historical ramifications of addiction on a broader level too if if you're thinking certain things about various populations to do with addicts or homelessness or mental illness or whatever it is, and your reaction is, why don't they just stop? Or your reaction is to sort of fall into that trap. It's kind of a good moment to go, where has this story come from? Is it is there an agenda behind it? But also you need to learn more about addiction because just stop is not, <laughs> it's not really valid. I think that's a great thing to remember. And it's the same, you know, when we did our episode about 
domestic abuse, it's the same thing, you know, the just leave. It's this one line and you and you think like how is that helpful for us to still be saying that? And it's it's the same with addiction. Just stop. Why don't you stop? You're doing harm. Like learning more about addiction, understanding what's happening in the brain, being aware of the historical heaviness of marginalized communities and their relationship with addiction that all colors how you then interact with addicts and how you make space for them because I think it's one thing for us to reflect on our own personal relationships with alcohol and drugs and I think that's really important for everyone to do but then it's another thing to envision a better version of society where there are actual opportunities for rehabilitation that take into consideration the fact that that take into consideration colonization. I think that it's a really important note to make when you're thinking about addiction. How do you feel about legalization and regulation of drugs and alcohol? Do you think that it should be legalized and regulated or not? Well, I definitely am for regulation because it's important to know what you're getting. And I think many of the deaths that we've seen with opioid epidemic, but other things have come from not knowing and being desperate enough to take anything. And I can really empathize with those people because... You know, you don't really care about living so much as you care about escaping where you are. And I think that is really you're kind of a sitting duck for nefarious uh, concoctions. But as far as legalization goes, I go back and forth. I'm sort of agnostic about whether it should be legal or not, or, you know, any substance should be legal or not. And I think my big problem is a logical one. Nicotine and alcohol are devastating addictive drugs. They've killed so many people. They've destroyed families, work productivity, happiness, you know, their pollutants. I mean, there's so much not good about them and they're legal. So it does not make logical sense to make other drugs illegal. It's hard for me to defend that because it's not like these are somehow less harmful. I just have one more question and you've kind of answered it in various ways throughout this, but it's just what's your advice to someone who would be struggling with addiction? So if you're already struggling and you can admit that, bravo, bravo, that's great to admit it. I think that is absolutely the first step to say it's not working. And that takes a certain kind of honesty and strength that will serve you well. So hold on to that little thread and then say it out loud to somebody else. So tell the truth out loud and uh, get support. And there are so many of us, this is a cool way to be. And, uh, you know, even if you don't want to stop completely, just get support in any way you need it, because this is a devastating illness that takes tons of lives It's um, first leading cause of death between people 15 and 34 is substance use disorders. And around the world, among all ages, it's the sixth leading cause of death. So it's really good that you're seeing that you might not want to go down that road. But my strong suggestion and the way it worked for me is that I connected with other people and got support and then find something interesting to do. I definitely spent the money that I would have spent on bags of weed or something on um, things that were more enriching. So, you know, don't deprive yourself. Life is full of exciting things. And so find some of those. I don't know if it's a research lab or an art easel or what, but find it and live.
Thank you so much for joining us on this episode of Bad Behavior. If you enjoyed this and you want to learn more about Judy's journey, definitely check out her book, Never Enough, The Neuroscience and Experience of Addiction. Check it out. Leave a review. It's a really, really great read and very important that we do learn more as always. (laughs) Thank you so much. We had a great time and we'll see you on the next one. See you next time. Bye. The executive producer for this episode was Rosalind Ankatel. Bad Behaviour is produced by Rosalind Ankatel, Nicola Cranage, and Amcheju Magembe. Hosted by Rosalind Ankatel and Nicola Cranage. Editing and sound design by Namcheju Magembe. Our logo was designed by Bonnie Eichelberger. We all misbehave sometimes. Wanna change the world. Indulge in some bad behavior.